1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything—simply everything—you could possibly think of has its own history, like pride, beetroot, and whipping.
2: <laughs> I know. I'm I'm wondering where those came from. I think in <laughs> some sort of weird sort of whoosh of Very good. inspiration. Or we could I do them. we could do plates, weights, and lates. Freights, which is a very nautical theme, greats and states. States is all about the history of alcohol. for example, ooh, ooh I was in a right state uh, the other <laughs> evening. However, this yeah. is to digress as ever. Were you going to come in there with something,
1: Sam Samuel? Willis? I was just gonna say we it's like, it's emotional states, isn't it? Or um Ooh
2: yeah. temporal mm, states. It could be also, oh, I think we should do states in a kind of like random way. Do we have to do do we have to agree on a definition of states or can we just, you know, just ramble? uh, I don't know. As always. However, to stop us rambling now, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of greed? is in fact all about The Seven Deadly Sins and Dante's Divine Comedy. It's about Francis Bacon's Essay of Riches. It's about feasting and Christmas at the court of Henry VIII. It's about the history of eating competitions. It's all about how many pies you can stuff into your mouth. It's also about Bernard Mandeville and bees and coffee drinking and Balzac. Who knew, Sam? Who knew? Or that the history of anxiety is in fact all about phobias and anxious masculinity, 17th century patriarchy, separation and anxiety. Freud and the London Foundling Hospital is about Elizabeth I and the famous Tide Letter to Mary I, replete, as you told us, with manuscript hatchings. It's about the Cold War and anxiety about the economy. It's about werewolves and sharks and so much more. Mmm, fascinating stuff.
1: Uh, You're probably wondering who is doing this introducing, let me say of my fellow presenter, that if history was a potential jam, yes, not, not an actual jam, but a potential jam, you've got to bear with me here. So perhaps a plate of yummy strawberries lovingly plucked from the past by the hands of historical researchers, but missing one crucial ingredient, sugar... This man would be the man who would charter a ship. He would sail to the West Indies and return with a cargo full of sugar. No doubt having fought tooth and nail to release all the slaves working on the sugar plantations. He is the benevolent creator of Historical Jam itself. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's
2: James Daybell. Hello, everyone. Uh, You may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice? So ably helping me co-pilot these episodes. Well, let's just say that if he were a jam-related historian. He'd only be the historical equivalent, not the actual person, but the historical equivalent of the reverend Archibald Charterie, who everyone knows, in 1887 founded the British concept of women's guilds in the Church of Scotland, which, of course, spawned the Women's Institute, that bastion of jam-making around the world. So sweet, fruity and long-lasting are his historical endeavours, so adept and thrifty is he at preserving the past. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis.
1: Hello, everyone.
2: Um, Hello. I love that. Brilliant. Um
1: Jam, jam, jam. We're doing jam. Um, uh, th- it's definitely one of James's, uh, not necessarily ideas for a podcast, but he thought it was a great um, unexpected subject, and then I
2: forced him to do it. Is that about right? Well, I think I had it as a rhyme, and then you said, let's do jam. <laughs> I'm, a lo- I'm a jam maker, and uh, hmm. I'm a real jam maker. I have a preserving pan and a thermometer and books on jam. I have jam jars in cupboards around the kitchen. I collect such things. I had a wonderful chat years ago with the brilliant uh, Victorian historian Eileen Yeo about jam making. And she offered me all her jam jars after our conversation. Very kind indeed. Nice. I'd like to see that collection of jam jars. I'll show you it. They're in little boxes uh, in Hmm. my kitchen. We could, I mean, I bet
1: I didn't think about this when I was doing my research into the history of jam, but I bet there's a really interesting material culture of jam making. Oh, there certainly is. Oh, my God. You know
2: yes. What? So what, are the, what are the jam jars like? Are they like a standard jar with a screwy lid? Oh, Sam, you want to tell me about jam, tell you about jam jars? Well, they're just standard jam jars uh, bought from Lakeland, uh, many okay. of them. And they come in two sizes. One is quite big. Uh, and of course, it has a gingham top. Uh, you know, as all good yeah, jam makers do, and then it ha- I have little labels you can pop on, and and little um, little diswetted discs that you put on the surface of the jam, and I have a I have a thermometer, and as I said, a preserving pan, and I even have a contraption that allows you to make jelly. So it's a little tripod Ooh. that you put up, and there's a muslin gauze that goes in, and you strain. The fruit through there so that you remove any of the pips and the sort of seeds and all of those sorts of things. I'm very adept at it. And then, of course, there's jam making recipes and they have a fascinating history. You can go all the way back to the 17th century uh, with these and you can have a look at jam making recipes in 16th and 17th century receipt books. And in fact, I have one here from the Clark Library. Uh, which is about preserving strawberries. To preserve strawberries, to a quart of scarlet strawberries and a pint of currant juice, you must put a pound of loaf sugar, bruise the strawberries well in a pan, then add the currant juice and the sugar, set it over a charcoal fire and let it boil gently till it jellies, then put it into pots for use. Any strawberries will do, but not so well. Mm. That's from that's dated from the second half of the seventeenth century, the sixteen sixties, and it comes from a recipe book connected to the Hornyold family. Hmm. Clark that's Manuscript Clark Manuscript two zero one two dot zero one one. Should you be so should you be so minded to look that up. You google it up yes, on but, the internet. Clark have a brilliant hmm. uh, online digital collection.
1: Oh, it kind of highlights the two fundamental points about Jam making, which are, um, have, have huge historical implications. One is you need some fruit and that fruit is not necessarily native to the United Kingdom. I'm obviously talking about British jam making here, but obviously the principle applies. You can make jams of all sorts of exotic fruit. So that exotic fruit has to either been imported or at some point in its life, um, some little examples or seeds or whatever have come across and they've been planted. So it's all to do with uh, exploring and um, maritime contacts and things like that. And often... um, very much linked with imperialism and overseas colonies, particularly so with the sugar. Uh, So obviously you can't have sugar unless you've got a sugar plantation. uh, And that means that you need to have some part of territory somewhere in the world where it's hot uh, and it's probably been in the West Indies and it will probably be manned by slaves. So um, there is a really interesting imperial side of history to jam making that we should not overlook right at the start. Uh, I, As James and I both live in the West Country, the first thing I actually thought about, having having considered the imperial history of jam making, uh, was cream tea's. And cream teas have a really interesting history. So, a cream tea, uh, for those of you who maybe you're listening in America and don't know what a cream tea is, or or France, you, you have a scone, which is James. Can you you're probably better at me than me at describing what a scone is? It's it's like a small
2: cake, like a, like a small round cake. Yes, probably about two to three inches in diameter, and it's made of flour. And I'm, I'm reeling really here. My my daughters make scones all the time, and I'm not really. So it's it's flour, sifted flour, and it's butter and and eggs. Okay, uh, and it is you a, put fruit um, yeah. in it. Yes.
1: Yes, it is raisins or no raisins uh, or other types of fruit. But it is a craft upon which you put your clotted cream and jam, and then you put it in your mouth, and it's completely delicious with a nice cup of tea. Uh, it is a West Country tradition. There's a bit of a row about whether you put your uh, uh, cream on first or jam on first, according to whether you're Cornish or, or from Devon. Anyway, very much from the South West. The scones themselves, interestingly, are of Scottish origin. And there is an interesting history to to cream teas. It's all to do with the late Victorian period and the rise of domestic tourism. So people coming down to the South probably on trains uh, after the whole train system was built and also the, the rise of roads and motorcars and things like that um the first known modern day usage of the cream tea wasn't until 1931 even though people suspect there've been cream teas eaten before as i say going back to the victorian period but there's a wonderful uh, description from a chap called Frank Goodmayes and he's writing in a newspaper called the Cornishman about his experience of a cream tea there is too much blatant profiteering going on. Visitors are being frightened away. For an alleged Cornish cream tea consisting of bread and butter, a splashing of cream and jam, and two anemic rolls, I was charged one shilling and sixpence. For a meagre dinner at a farmhouse, three sh- shillings and sixpence. Cup of coffee, sixpence. A plate of cold beef, one shilling and ninepence. And so the wretched tale goes on. Can one wonder that those who cater for our holiday happiness are having a thin time? You can get better and cheaper on the continent. It's me for Switzerland next year. In today's money, the one shilling and sixpence cream tea would cost around £3.50. You won't find money cream teas being sold for that price today. So there you are. That's a fabulous little story about uh, the history of cream teas and how it is really not, um, you know, uh, it wasn't necessarily all, all good stuff. There is a An even earlier history here, and this comes from Tavistock in the West Country, and it's all to do with a uh, recovering from a Viking raid on Tavistock in the 11th century. Um, The the, the abbey was actually raided in 997, and then the task of rebuilding was left to the Earl of Devon. really interesting chap called Ordwolf. He's the son of a chap called Ordgar, who was the Ealdemar of Devon. Uh, His sister was Queen... Ælfrith, I love these names, and she was third wife of King Edgar the Peaceful and mother of King Ethelred the Unready. Point being here is that while they're rebuilding the uh, abbey, um, records show that local people helping them were fed by the monks with bread topped with cream or butter and some type of strawberry preserve. I uh, wonder how that would have been sweetened in a time pre-sugar. Maybe with honey. Um, it's unclear whether this actually counts as an official cream tea, but it's definite proof that a yummy kind of bread-based snack, a flour-based baked snack together with cream and some kind of fruit preserve has been around for a very, very long time in the South
3: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Dare I say it, I'm a bit of a radical on the cream tea front. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know there's this sort of big debate between the Cornish and the and Devonians about whether you put the jam or the clotted cream on first. For me, it's in fact butter first, then jam, then clotted cream as a sort of little creamy hat on top. So I, I'm probably going to be kicked out of Devon now for for such a philistine way of eating cream teas. However, I'm going to take us in a different direction. I'm going to take us to World War II and to the Women's Institute, the WI made famous uh, recently by that brilliant situation comedy Jam and Jerusalem, and more about Jam and Jerusalem later on. So during World War Two, when rationing was there, people needed to get involved in preserving and doing things like that. And so this is when the W.I. come in. The W.I. was founded, as I said earlier on, by... Uh, The Reverend... Now, who who did I say you were, Sam, at the beginning? The Reverend Archibald Chartery, in 1887, founded the British concept of the Women's Guilds in the Church of Scotland, which then, towards the end of the century and into the 20th century, led to the foundation around the world, and in Canada uh, and in Britain, of the Women's Institute. And the Women's Institute in Britain was founded in 1915 in the Isle of Anglesey in Wales, and the idea had come over from Canada. Now, with the outbreak of the Second World War, of course, you know, in 1939, the WI was very involved in day-to-day life, and apparently there were WI institutes in about five and a half thousand villages around the country and they were involved in all sorts of things to do with the war effort they were involved firstly in looking after evacuees they were involved in when the children came out of the towns into the countrysides rural areas they were involved in making sure that they were billeted with People living in those in houses in in the area, they were involved in raising money for committees during this period for various sort of campaigns and the National Savings Scheme. They were also involved in operating market stalls, so making sure that local produce was getting uh, to people to eat from the sort of local farms and from uh, various sort of agricultural. Um, workers. They, of course, were involved in knitting. So there was a big knitting campaign and apparently they produced more than 150,000 different knitted items and there were all sorts of demonstrations of how to knit. So this was all part of the war effort. They were also involved in growing vegetables. So part of that sort of dig for victory campaign. And importantly, they were involved in jam making and this was probably the thing that they are most famous for and they're known as for jam and jerusalem and during the <laughs> second world war when jam and jerusalem in terms of singing Jam and Jerusalem in terms of singing and in terms of jam. So the jam is because they are known for jam, and Jerusalem is because at the start of every meeting they would sing Jerusalem. Uh, so uh. It, it, it's a it's a it's a bit of a derogatory uh, way of looking at them. And, and as I'm going to say later on, they were much more, uh, you know, many many more things that they did than than simply make jam and sing songs. Um So, back to what I was saying about um the making of jam. this is a period when we 've got rationing on food is in is in shortage, there is a glut of produce that 's coming out that 's being grown, and of course, it has a shelf life and in order for it not to go to waste, what you need to do is you need to be able to preserve it and so jam making was really important um, and it 's estimated there 's a brilliant website, uh, a blog article on this, on the Imperial War Museum website, and it's estimated that 450 tonnes of fruit were stopped from rotting during the Second World War. Hmm. And from about 1940 onwards, the Ministry of Food gets involved and it takes over a much sort of greater Degree of supervision of these kinds of activities. This is when rationing goes into force, and in all of the local villages, they set up preservation centres. And so the reason that they do this is because supplies of sugar, that have, as you've said already, Sam, are needed for jam making, were very, you know, in short supply and needed to be strictly controlled. And it's the women in the WI who are involved in. Setting up and and doing things, making the jam in these preserving centres. So they are the backbone of that sort of preservation of food. They're also out in the countryside gathering rosehip, which is a really good form of vitamin C, which is really good for you know heart conditions and and that kind of thing. So they're really doing all sorts of you know important things during the Second World War. But also, I think it's important to just say that, you know, that it isn't simply all about jam and Jerusalem. So as I said earlier on, jam is is about the jam making that they they all do. Jerusalem is to the fact that at the beginning of their meetings, they open up uh, proceedings by singing Jerusalem, which is a a, a song, um, hymn composed by Hubert Parry. Uh, and, and did those feet in ancient time? You know, you know the one uh, very well. But you know, there, a lot of as I was saying earlier on, there's a lot more that, in fact, they do. And there are a couple of articles around this that, um, that where, where members of the WI have been complaining about this this use. Uh, so, in the Daily Herald uh, on the Friday, the eighth of January, nineteen fifty four, Victor Thompson mentioned Jerusalem being sung at the opening of a meeting and jam-making with the subheading, Not All Jam. Um, They sat on little cane chairs that had obviously not been made to measure, and they opened the meeting by singing Blake's Jerusalem, Not All Jam. Miss MacFarlane said the day before, Don't think we're only jam-makers, we're an organisation of experts, for all housewives are expert at something, and we therefore we are therefore an information exchange and a pathway to new information and a center for social relaxation too and i think it's that it's that it's that side of them that i think has been overlooked that they are they were this sort of we- local web of knowledge and information and sociability that was so important particularly during the second world war they were so ingrained and embedded into local societies that they would get things done. There's another account uh, published in the Birmingham Post on Wednesday the 24th of March 1965. Mrs Molly Millard, National Federation Press and Public Relations Officer, urged the need to bring movement's public image up to date, that if that image was still one of jam and Jerusalem, it was largely members' own doing. I do not decry our jam and Jerusalem image. We are the best jam makers in the country, and we do most superb handicrafts, but that is only a tenth of the iceberg. With our science, community work, rallies, and other activities, we have something for everyone, but we rarely let other people know. So there we are, Sam. Jam and Jerusalem is only the tip of the iceberg. Nonetheless, the WI were extraordinarily important in their jam making activities preserving the produce from the land and furthering the war effort <laughs> very good very good i also thought about world
1: war 2 and i thought i bet i tell you what i bet they're making jam out of something horrible they're probably making jam <laughs> jam out, jam out of, out of out of mud and leaves but quite um, probably but, but then claimed it was good. Well, carrot jam was the answer because they made everything out of carrots, as we know. And we wrote about it in our Second World War book. We actually didn't write about carrot jam, did we? We talked about carrot cake and carrots, for uh, something else now. I can't remember. But um, certainly... Carrot
2: Christmas carrot, pudding.
1: Carrot Christmas pudding. <laughs> yes. uh, carrot jam was a big thing. However, what I thought was really interesting is that they're not... I assumed, right, that when you've got the limits of rationing is that you make do with what you've got. And people are innovating, right? They're creating new recipes with a limited uh, set of ingredients. However, when it comes to carrot jam, it's proof that actually what they did is they went back to previous older recipes, where there may have been um, a a similarly uh, restricted type of ingredients, perhaps because of the First World War, or perhaps because there just wasn't there wasn't the kind of global access uh, that was required that we take for granted today. So in the 1940s, there are references to people using Mrs. Rohrer's 1909 vegetable cookery book and Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management of 1861. So they're using those recipe books in the 1940s, and both of them have recipes for carrot jam. So it's going back in history a bit already, but current jam actually uh, the earliest example of it comes. It's it's Arabic. It comes from the Middle East in the 12th century. Um, and there are various ways you can therefore, you know, chop and explore this history. But one of the most interesting, uh, of course, for me being uh, someone interested in maritime history and the sea, is a description from 1771, a letter from Baron Storch of Berlin to Captain James Cook, who is looking for ways to keep his crew from getting scurvy while his ship HMS Resolution is docked in Deptford. So this is linked with Cook's uh, circumnavigations of the world and his desire to, to go further uh, away from shore than anyone's been and for longer. And he needs to keep his crew from getting sick. And uh, Mister, uh, this Baron Storch describes this marmalade jam as a, as a, uh, a remedy against scurvy. About the beginning of October, when the yellow carrots are the sweetest, you take fresh out of the ground as many as you intend to make use of. Take care to choose them well, that none with black spots be left between them. You wash your carrots sundry times and clean them nicely of the herb as well as of the green top. If you intend to make but a small quantity of the marmalade, you may grate your carrots upon a tin grater. But should you want any large quantity, you may mince or hatch the carrots, which you put into a kettle and add as much fresh water that your carrots be covered with about four inches with water. You boil them over a small fire until they are reduced to a pap. The grated carrots want less boiling. The hatched ones must be boiled about 12 hours. Take a great care never to give too much fire after they begin to boil and to stir your carrots now and then for fear they may stick or burn. When your carrots are boiled enough, you strain them well through a clean linen and press the felt well that all the juice may come out. The dregs are a good food for hogs, geese and ducks. You put the filtrated juice of carrots into another kettle and boil it again over a small fire until it gets thickness of a fluid honey. At this last boiling, you must take great care by constant stirring and by small firing to prevent it sticking to the kettle and burning, which will give to your marmalade a bitter and disagreeable taste. When your marmalade is enough boiled and well done, you preserve it into stone or earth pots, well varnished, and keep it well covered with a parchment or bladder. If it is well made and thick enough boiled, it will preserve full Two years. Should your marmalade spoil by some accident or other and get some moisture at the top, you take off the moisture with a spoon and boil it again and it will regain its first sweetness. So there you are. You have the invention of a carrot jam suggested by a German to Captain James Kirk in 1771 as a cure for scurvy. However, Cook he obviously tries this and he later describes carrot jam as entirely ineffective. <laughs> so it doesn't work at all. But that's not surprising because carrots uh, as we all know don't contain much vitamin C or they certainly contain less than citrus fruits. So uh, if you if you you're struggling with scurvy,
2: don't have carrots. Have a nice orange. Oh, lovely Sam it's making me feel like i need to go and do some cooking uh, now listening to all of this now i want to take us back very briefly to world war 2 and to think again about the materiality to so the material culture of jam making and there are a couple of things that i want to draw your attention to one is the dig for victory leaflet number 10 Jam and jelly-making. Not only were the WI up to jam-making activities during this period, but also there was a whole production of really useful little pamphlets that told people how to cook in particular ways. Those recipes about carrot jam and the other carrot-related recipes that you were talking about, Sam, again, come from one of these Dig for Victory leaflets that we talked about in our book on World War II. But this one, this jam for Dig for Victory leaflet number 10, has all sorts of information in it about jam. The, The fruit must be fresh is best just ripe jam from overripe fruit may not set well and it goes through you know, talking about pectin which is the, the ingredient, the agent that makes the jam set. It talks about how to sterilise things, it talks about you know, using sugar, all sorts of things like that, how to remove pips and all that sort of thing. The other thing that I want to talk about very briefly uh, it's not only the recipes themselves, but it's something that we started to talk about at the very beginning, Sam, when I was talking about jam jars, because it's fine having a huge glut of produce that you need to preserve. It's fine having a band of people who will produce the jam for you in a very organised way in the preserving centres. But what you need is receptacles, receptacles. ...to put the jam into, and there were efforts to try and get hold of as many jam jars as was humanly possible... ...even when the war was over, because in the 1950s, some years after the war, there was still a glut of fruit... ...and there survive a number of posters produced at the time asking for jam jars... There's one that I have here from the 1950s that says, Help preserve the jam ration. Empty jars wanted. Have them ready for house-to-house collection or take them to the nearest collection depot. Only jars marked F-M-F are wanted. That first F is a backwards F. So there we are, Sam, the material culture Of jam making. And you talked about Acton and uh, Eliza Acton and Mrs Beaton and their cookbooks. And I think those are some of the first cookbooks that really invented English cooking. And it's not only the jam recipes that come out for them, but it's also where we find the recipe for a jam roly-poly a jam roly poly for those of you who don't know it is basically something that is very stodgy and very sweet. It's a form of of pudding that's made out of suet and you put the you you, you roll it out, and then what you do is you put a little layer of jam in it, roll it up, and then you steam it and one of the first examples of this comes from Eliza Acton's Modern Cookery for Private Families and then it is it's picked up uh, later on by Mrs Beaton. and i have a, i have a copy of Mrs Beeton's uh, a sort of facsimile copy of Mrs Beaton's cookery manual which uh which is a brilliant book absolutely brilliant book every every household should have one uh, and it was first printed in 1861, and it's it's sort of like a sort of little encyclopedia, Mrs. Beacon's book of household management. And recipe one two nine one is for roly poly jam pudding, and the ingredients are three quarters of a pound of suet crust. Uh, you can find that in recipe number one two one five. Three quarters of a pound of any kind of jam mode. Make a nice light suet crust by recipe number 1215 and roll it out to the thickness of about half an inch. Spread the jam equally over it, leaving a small margin of paste without any where the pudding joins. Roll it up, fasten the ends securely and tie it in a floured cloth. Put the pudding into boiling water and boil for two hours. Mincemeat or marmalade may be substituted for the jam, but not in our episode since this is all about jam. And makes excellent puddings. Average cost ninepence. sufficient for five or six persons. Seasonable, suitable for winter puddings when fresh fruit is not obtainable. And we can see the jam roly-poly in recipes by Jamie Oliver and Nigella Lawson and other people like that to this very day. I imagine, uh, I imagine as a schoolboy, Sam, you ate this. I suspect I did. I suspect you did. I, I suspect
1: I, I liked it. I like anything with jam in
2: it. Yes, I like jam. What's your favourite jam? Uh, ah, got you Damson. There. Ooh, damson. I quite like strawberry jam, but I also like fig jam. I sampled excellent Italian fig jam several years ago, and I simply can 't get enough of it nowadays. Bon maman do a very good variety of it, I must admit in your local supermarket mm, good.
1: I was just going to end with a slightly sad story. Um, I quite like it though this is about something called grape laid it 's a really weird word, so it 's grape with l a d on the end so its it 's like marmalade, but with grape at the front grape laid. And it's um, to do with the the history of jam making in America. And there's this horticulturist, a chap called Ephraim Wales Bull. What a brilliant name. He invented a, 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 ty- a new type of grape, a wild red grapevine that would grow in his hometown of Concord, Massachusetts. But he did so at a time before you could patent and protect new plant varieties, which is something that I'd never considered before. But, you know, here are people inventing inventing new plants, really, but you can't protect it. And what happens is that he, he dies a poor man, having created this this uh, grape variety, which grows brilliantly and it's super delicious. And what happened was that after he died, loads of other people made a huge success out of the Concord grape, particularly one chap who was a dentist and a clergyman, Dr Thomas Welch, and he created something called Unfermented Wine. And he gave that to his congregation. So, this is all to do with temperance, temperance movement. So, it's non alcoholic wine, essentially grape juice. They become rich because of this, and then they start making jam with the Conquered Grape. So this is the the same family, Dr Welsh's family, making jam with the Conquered Grape, and they do it in 1918, and it's loved so much that uh, uh, the US Army buy uh, all of it, basically, and it's uh, all to do with the US Army in the First World War. It becomes part of soldiers' rations. They like it so much that when they come back from the war, they're all demanding more of this grape laid. It becomes uh, ridiculously hugely, hugely popular, and the Welsh family become immensely wealthy. But let's just go back to the horticulturalist Ephraim Wells Bull. He was the guy who invented this red grape variety and uh, he died a poor man. But it says on his gravestone that Ephraim Wells Bull was the originator of the Concord grape. He sowed, others reaped. (laughs) There is a man who, who, uh, who a little bit bitter or the family were a little bit bitter about everyone else's wealth. Uh, one from the invention of this, this fabulous horticulturalist. So, we'd finish this podcast with a little nod to the wonderful and forgotten Ephraim Wells Bull. Excellent, Sam. Thank you very much. Um, that's all for now, guys. That's, that's it. That's it for our wonderful history of jam. Do get in touch with your jam related stories if you've got any. You can find Histories of the Unexpected on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please listen to my podcast, The Mariner's
2: Mirror Podcast. And if you have any jam recipes or tips that you want to send us, we, or I, would be very grateful <laughs> to receive them. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, if you're minded, uh, at James Dable. You can follow the podcast on At Unexpected Pod. We are also all over social media. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. We are also uh, lucky enough to have a Patreon page. So if you have any any sort of spare little pennies in your pockets, uh, we are very gratefully receive them to help keep going this excellent podcast that we do on a weekly basis,
1: Sam Willis. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for listening, guys. We're going to come back soon with the
2: history of danger. One to look forward to. Oh, that now that is something to that is something to cherish. Bye, guys.
1: (laughs) Bye bye. Bye.